Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 27. Today I am joined with my good friend Al Tmeyer. I've known Al for probably five years, six years, and Al was a uh, store manager that I worked with uh, in Andale, and uh, so I wanted to get Al on and, and have a, get his perspective of how the dealership world has changed from the time he started till the time he retired, and he's He's part-time now. He does a little part-time selling for a dealership in Hutch. But he's a he's a, one of those guys that I loved working with. He was he's a character, and, and I enjoyed every minute of it. And and uh, used to bounce a lot of used equipment values off of him. So, Al, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Casey. So, Al, why don't you uh, let's just start off with tell me a little bit about your background and how, where you grew up at and that kind of stuff. Well, grew up in eastern Kingman County, Kansas, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, went to school locally at Garden Plain and then on to college at, uh, graduated from Wichita State University in December of 1974. And, um, uh, you know, after that, I was working in the construction, the excavating business, and, uh, you know, thought that I reached a pinnacle in pay there. And so I moved uh, to a John Deere dealership uh, called Polterra uh, Equipment in Hutchinson, Kansas at that time. And uh, I worked there uh, briefly in 79 and 80 because I was waiting on a construction, John Deere construction job, uh, selling John Deere construction equipment out of Wichita, which, you know, had been promised and was delivered. It was just delayed a little bit. So I worked there for two or three years in that. And then uh, struck out in the excavating business with a partner, and uh, you know uh, had had uh, great good success there. But uh, when we split up, I had a no compete agreement, and uh, that's how I ended up in Andale, Kansas, as a salesman in August of 1987. So you you couldn't have picked a better time to go into the ag equipment business than August of 1987, right? Uh, not exactly, but okay. I mean it was bad. Uh, really bad. I mean, uh, interest rates were high. Uh, some people had bought higher priced land after the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, we had some good crops and good prices then, but uh, so people were strapped pretty hard financially. It was it was very slow in the sales business, even though uh, I knew the area very well. You know, having come from the area, yeah. but it was it was a tough road to hoe. All right, so. So give give me an idea of back then. So you're selling a new combine back in 1987. Yeah. Um, what what was what was the price of that new combine? I sold. Uh, I think the last new 7720 uh, in 1988, I believe, the fall of 1988, uh, with a uh, John Deere uh, 224 flex head. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then, I think uh, the whole tab was just short of ninety thousand dollars. Ninety thousand bucks for a combine and a head. Yeah, yep. Man, how times have changed. Now you can get oh, a, just a head for ninety thousand bucks. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> right. Uh, so <clears throat> let's let's go back here a little bit. So when you first started working at uh, Pulterra, tell me about mm-hmm. that time frame and what that was like, and 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 in the the, the environment you were working in. Well. Uh, you know, in, in that environment, uh, things in 79 and 80 were better than they were uh, seven or eight years later. Uh, 
<laughs> but we were selling new 40 series, like a 4440 was a popular ticket, or 4240 uh, back in those days, or 7720 uh, combine. But, uh, you know, business was better then as far as the sales end of it was, and it deteriorated, you know, as time went on. But uh, felt like we had a, a decent product offering, you know, and really, even as I went to Andale, we were selling 50 series tractors then. And then uh, the green cab, you know, uh, John Deere 778820s, a few 6620s. But we felt like we had a good solid product. But, uh, you know, it just, there were just not many takers. Right. So what was it like, you know, you've, you've kind of on again and off again farmed for, for quite a while, right? That's correct. Yeah. So when you were doing, you're doing both. So you're, you're working with guys and then you're doing your own farming on the side. What was that yes. like during that time frame? Well, you know, I knew what they were talking about, what their problems were. I experienced the same things, you know, as far as uh, on the one hand, on the business side, you could, you could hear people talk about, uh, you know, how much money a farmer had or didn't coming from uh, management. It, when you knew, in fact, that they were pretty well strapped with, with this old older debt that was high priced and, and had they'd suffer they were suffering through some really high interest 16 18% interest you know and it was just killing them so you know um, it's easy to to tell somebody how good it is when you're not really immediately involved in the in in that uh, plight and uh, so you know I knew a little different both sides of the fence if you will that how tough it was to make ends meet at that time on the farm and uh you know and on the business side uh you know just you know worried about the dealership and everything else that that goes along with that uh, i was early on in the sales and i think maybe uh let's see i'm trying to think maybe in 19 gosh 89 or 90 i became the manager there uh, and, and of the store. So, you know, really involved in the financials and, and the profitability of the dealership uh, and that kind of thing. So, um, anyway, I could see both sides of the fence. So, when you, the farmers out, there's a lot of multi generational farmers that are in that area. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, what were they doing? Where were, what was their success and, and what, what did they do, you know, to, because to, to, I think times are, I don't want to say times are similar now that they, compared to them because they're not there's a no it's a different kind of struggle now than it was yes but what what were they doing that was successful you know what what were successful farmers doing what were successful sales guys doing to make to make ends meet back then boy i don't know about the successful sales guys but it was it was a tough going but the farmers that that i knew and, and dealt with um were financially strong They'd, they'd been there a long time, and that you're absolutely right. Multi-generational of the same family, the same ground, and they were able to you know, add pieces or product pieces to their uh, operation. What they did, I think, was take advantage because when the farmers are going through tough times, the dealership is as well. Right. And so the dealership struggle, and you know what happens when, when people struggle, the margins slip, uh, Good deals are there to be had. I think they took advantage of those, and you know, they would look at a good deal and and still work over the dealership or the salesman even harder. Even though in regular times it would have been a great deal, but you know, they they continued to 
to gnaw on the salesman and, and uh, try to get a better deal yet. But they took advantage of the hard times for everybody if they were rock solid, financially strong, and, and, and made purchases when others maybe did not or could not. So compare compare the farmer that was in the you know 1977, 1978, 1979, mm-hmm. and then you roll into like 80, 81, 82, 83 when there really was that that first signs of a, of a major collapse in in uh, in the ag market. <clears throat> Were there similar behaviors in maybe 78, 79, 77 that you saw maybe in 2010 through 2014? Probably a lot, uh, you know, I think it, in that time frame, uh, and, and I would came where I was working was uh, a very financially strong, maybe non uh, like everybody else's. I mean, maybe a non prototypical uh, store because most of the people there were farming good black earth and uh, were financially strong, multi generational. So I think. A lot of other areas with less prosperous grounds, you know, less good ground and stuff, some of those guys were lost in that time frame. Those producers were gone. And uh, so, again, the same people um, would take advantage, and I don't say take advantage, they were there and able to to add to their operation, uh, ground, property, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So when you say... Um so would you say that there's there were a, were there a lot of guys in the in the late seventies that were trying to rapidly grow their farm based on leveraged, similar to what you saw, maybe what we saw in the late you know the late early part of the two thousands going in going into two thousand fourteen was a lot of that going on the same way. I think the, stuff. I think without a doubt, yes. Okay. I think without a doubt, and, and the trouble is is that sometimes the people that move the first are those that are the most highly leveraged. Right. Uh, and, and uh, sometimes the, the people that aren't leveraged can sit back and wait till the fire dies down. It's just smoldering, and then they can step in. Yeah, you know, which is I think that's any business is that way. Whether it's a you know a Fortune five hundred company or anybody else, I think those things happen. It's just business, right? Just right place, right time, and watching the trends. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's let's, you know so. Late seventies, pretty good. All the eighties were horrible. My dad, so yes. my dad's been to oil field since I was born. So I mean, he stepped into oil field business about the same time you stepped into the dealership business, and yeah, and uh, so it's pretty much similar throughout the eighties. So you, you jump into the early nineties, and it's not that much better. Right, that's correct. Okay, so what was it like in the nineties? You know, talking like the early part of the nineties, ninety, you know, nineteen ninety through nineteen ninety five. You know, what was that like? And and then what were farmers doing different then that they were maybe took some lessons from the eighties that they, that they are applying to their and dealership guys as well. What they, what were they doing different in the nineties than they were in the eighties? Well, I think one thing with farming that changed a little bit was, uh, more people took a good, good hard look, uh, at irrigation, uh, where they, where water was available and where the water was actually in the ground. Um, we had some people that were irrigating in the pretty prairie area, you know, as, man i suppose in the late 60s and uh but they they added wells and and uh permits and those kind of things and as well as in the andale area i think irrigation was a big boon uh to there that slowed up a bunch now because there's you know in many cases there's 
there's no appropriable water left in basins and those kind of things. But, uh, you know, again, the manufacturers, I feel like we're offering a, you know, a quality product. Uh, you know, we were looking at the 9000 series deer combines at that time uh, and, and other manufacturers, uh, Case, uh, you know, inter, uh, Case Age, other people uh, were uh, offering good products as well. So the product offering was there. And I think it was look, looking like kind of a rebounding effort. Um, but uh, one thing that really, is, as I recall in the 90s, throughout the 90s, uh, was a big change, I thought, was uh, the custom harvester business. Um, rolling those combines, you know. Uh, all of a sudden, it, it became kind of the, for me, the, the, the first sign or light that I had seen of a possible combine glut, used combine glut, as a result. Yep. So that's what you kind of fast forward to like 1992, 93, <clears throat> and there becomes a, a pretty big pile of, of 95, 9,600 combines in, in basically central Kansas and, and south central Kansas, across the whole country. But, I mean, there, yep. uh, there was a quite a pile there. So what, what was that like and how that affect business and, and, and what, what was the overall kind of underlying outcome of that? Well, you know, it's, it's like everything, and, and uh, it, it takes a while, it seems like, um, for people to realize six, eight, ten months, twelve months later that, oops, we've got a problem. We're building inventory where that used inventory used to be traded out of there in that time frame, and, and everything was fine, you know. And all of a sudden, you know, at a little store like ours, we had, you know, 12, 14 used 9,000 series combines on hand. And so we we had to put the brakes on. Um, it didn't seem to affect row crop at that time or four-wheel drive tractors. It you know, and, and the four-wheel drive tractor business, you know, as you know today, is pretty slow. But uh, at that time, it wasn't a factor. But the combines was really the focal point, uh, you know, for us. We decided, look, we've got to do something different. We're trading and we're not moving the trades. So, with the economic of economic conditions of the night, what was driving the combine sales so much? I think uh, you know we always had a certain amount of uh, of our customers, um, you know, that would roll their combines. The same guys, really, uh, and and I think you can put a finger to that um, to uh, you know the strong financial people that would you know roll those things at at six, seven, eight hundred separator hours uh, but the the annual thing on the custom harvesters you know i think was the interest waiver they get those machines in for next year in december there was an interest waiver till next june and uh, you know they just bought uh, some interest you know savings there and uh, and dealers were still just like they are today you know we i don't know we uh, hopefully we've learned something but you know, we were aggressive and looking for that business, you know, sell more, do more. But uh, we could sell more. We just couldn't, on the new side, we just couldn't get rid of the used. And that market changed. And a lot of dealerships, you know, I, I know of some that I won't name that actually went under because of the combine business. Yeah. And uh, in Kansas. But uh, I, I, like I said, I think that it's so hard to react to see that, you know, that would, no one's got a crystal ball. So it, it's hard to see that coming. It, you know, it's almost it's got you before you realized what happened. Okay. So 
combine business is a struggle and it always has been. I don't know that. Yes. As long as I've been in this business, the one thing that our focus point I've always been on has been the combine business. Um, right. And it's something that you can't not sell. You know what I mean? So, right. Um, you right. got to, but you want those out in your marketplace running around because the park and service business is so good. Man. Absolutely. You want to have that Absolutely. out there. So, what, what, uh, you kind of fast forward, you know, you're going to like the mid 90s where things kind of start to kind of peak up a little bit. The economy starts to turn around a little bit and things are kind of starting to change a little bit. How did, how did you change at your sales approach and how did your dealership change and, and how did the farmer change after going through, you know, Basically, still kind of licking their wounds after the early '90s and, and, and '80s. Yeah. Well, I I think Casey, this is probably still really prior to uh, internet auctions, the computer auctions, and those kind of things. But we we just sat down. I sat down with the owner, and and uh, he said, "This has got to change, and here's how we're going to do it." He said, "You and I are going to look over every combine and four wheel drive tractor deal there is." Prior to that, you know, there was no system. Uh, we'd talk about things round table. At that point in time, I think we had three stores, and we would talk about the value of equipment round table. And, you know, you can throw the low out and throw the high out, whatever a guy thinks, you know, so whatever your system is. Or like today, you know, they've got, we've raised people that, are, that know that business like you uh, inside and out. And uh, to, to control that. But back then, he said, we're, before we let the salesman make their deal, he may talk to me, he may talk to the other store managers at the other two stores and, and uh, you know, uh, make a deal. But after that, the owner said, uh, that's not going to happen anymore. If you and I don't rubber stamp it, it ain't going to happen. And so anyway, that's what happened. So how much did that affect the culture of your of your dealership? Well, I mean, um, uh, you know, when you go to selling what you think is a lot of combines to selling two or three or four a year, that's a big change. And some of those guys, you know, want to know what's going on. Why did you give me this many dollars or we traded so many dollars to separate our before? And you just have to come back and say, look. We, we build inventory. It's not working. Uh, you know, you should be happy that you got the deal that you did two years ago. Right. But but uh, we got a handle on it, and uh, I think we moved at a small store, like 10 or 11 used combines, uh, pretty quick, within eight months or so. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, there's other, other, there's other venues now that we didn't have access to and at that time because – we didn't take them to the local auctions, you know, uh, equipment. And so now there's this, all this, you know, the internet, the, the big auction companies that are, that's big business for them and for the dealers as well that goes on today. So you bring up a good point there. That's, that's a, one thing I, you know, auctions today are pretty much a, a common experience. I mean, you have the online stuff. There seems like there's a lot of local auction houses, if you will. And, um, there's just the internet's done so much as far as bringing you know even auctions in Iowa and Illinois and Indiana and Texas and wherever else to more of a really shrink that world down to where there's there's really you can't yeah. isolate yourself from an auction anymore right right so right what was it I like agree. 
back then, you know, back in back in the eighties and nineties when they, when there was a local auction, how how much effect did that play in your marketplace, and how did that lasting stigma of I bought this machine so cheap on the auction. How long did that stigma last, and and what was the effect of that on the overall market for a while? Well, I think back then, prior to the internet stuff, I think the local farm auctions, you know, the the guy that's retiring or this, that, and the other, actually bolstered a little bit of our prices because, you know, a good farm auction, it seems like there's a certain amount of of insanity that goes along with that. Right. And those pieces of equipment were bringing more with no warranty than you could have got off the dealer's lot. Right. So I think they they kind of helped a little bit. Uh, back then, the Bible, if you will, uh, for us in our area was the High Plains Journal. It, anybody that was anybody was advertising in the High Plains Journal and, and later um, Farm Talk and, uh, not, and a couple of others. But really, the Bible was the, the High Plains Journal. And, uh, of course, that's all changed now. And all of those people that off, offer print offer the uh, the internet uh, pricing as well for the customers. But it used to be, you know, we might sell one a piece of used equipment 150 miles away from home. Mm-hmm. But really, most of it was marketed. I'll say within uh, of of the three stores I, within 60 miles. All right. Pretty much. And that's different today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> so with that, back to that point there. So again, internet's made the world a pretty small place. You know, I don't, I don't Absolutely. have to do a whole lot to look at a piece of equipment. There's online pictures, and you know, I pick the phone up, call a guy, he emails me pictures. It's pretty simple. I mean, there's not. It is. It doesn't take a lot. Shoot me videos, whatever it is. Right. If you were, how would you? If you guys are looking for a piece of equipment that you didn't have, how did you go find that piece of equipment? What'd you do? Well, actually, back in those days, we didn't do much. Uh, you know, we kept uh, wrote a note down, or, or however you kept track of it, and uh, it allowed us in our trade area, and even really outside of our trade area, if we if we traded for something that a guy might want, we knew who wanted it. It allowed us to pre-sell that stuff a lot. So I, I know that. Joe Farmer is looking for a forty-four fifty-five. We just traded for a nice one, you know. Boom! But uh, you know, we get that done. A lot of pre-selling of stuff, and uh, but as far as going to look for one, we never took the step. Uh, and I know other dealers did, but we felt like we were running competition. If there was a forty-four fifty-five on a farm sale. 25 miles away or whatever the mileage was, we did not go there and bid it. We just felt like that it was negative on our part to bid against our, our farmer friends. So we did not do that. Now, of course, we don't have to because there's, you know, you're pretty much anonymous on the internet. If you buy that piece that's in Iowa for Southern Kansas, you know, you know, nobody knows or, or, you know, there's no, negative aspect to it so let's kind of move through here to the late 90s so dealerships kind of went through a bit of a merger and acquisition period there coming out of the 80s through the early 90s and in the mid 90s there seemed to be um that that kind of the spark of of what turned into be a pretty big especially in kansas a pretty big uh, merger and acquisition kind of period 
What, Absolutely. What was the what was the dealership mindset and the farmer mindset of of the bigger dealer group? You know, if, back when you're talking, if you had like you guys had three three dealerships there, <clears throat> that's a at that time that was a very large dealer group. Um, what was the idea and what was the mindset of the dealership group and the uh, and the farmer when it came to this dealership size? Well, I think the the, the dealership uh, through the owner we had a single owner, mm-hmm. but his 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 take on it would have been that we can uh, we have a, a one location that sells a lot of used equipment, good used, and not much new. We've got another location or two that d- deals uh, and uh, you know local, late model, very nice equipment. We had actually a third that did some of that, but they did a lot of multi unit deals. So they were generating some one year old equipment, tractors, combines, etc. So we, we looked at it as a place to go with that stuff, that if we didn't have this store that, that could utilize, all stores could use, utilize little of the used equipment, but we had one in particular that, that seemed to do more with used. Their, their, their farmer group, a uh, little less productive ground, didn't feel like that they could afford new equipment, but they could you know use good used uh, late model equipment or, or within five years old. So... And also, there was a, a deal on parts where they felt like they could shuffle parts between the stores, uh, you know, and, and uh, get that get the customer served a little quicker uh, in that respect. So really, what they were looking at, they were they were maximizing their dealership wise. Yeah. They were they were maximizing their right their potential. You know, taking right. advantages of one situation to better advance. Yeah, and, and the parts purchases for three stores, you could, you know, how that worked as well. But right. I mean, if we bought a truckload of oil instead of the half, or if we bought truckloads of hardware instead of half, you know, you, you got better deals. Okay. So, you know, and then we'd we'd split it up of where it needed to go on our end. Right. <clears throat> so, what was uh, what was the farmers? You know, because they love to call and pit store get store every chance they get. Sure. But what was uh, and I God bless them. I do the same thing. But what was their <laughs> what was their mentality of of the larger dealer group? You know, um, it's probably you know just two views. Uh, you know, you see an elephant and somebody else sees something else. Mm-hmm. But you know, there were pros and cons. Some people did not like and still don't the larger dealer groups. They they think they've lost the a little bit of the competition and and that that issue has probably been beat to death for the last you know five six seven years but others saw some benefit to it uh, you know that maybe they could offer something with the technology changing as quick as it was and the equipment you know that uh, a single or or two dealership operation could not do yeah so. So now we get into two thousands, and really the farm economy is warming up. Things are getting a little better into the two thousands, and and um, technology starts coming into play. You start looking at uh, some some very 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 primitive, if you for lack of a better term, primitive auto track stuff that was coming into yes. play, and and all the different technologies that that could come into that, and the idea of a tractor being able to drive itself and and be more efficient with your applications of fertilizer and seed and what have you and so forth. Mm-hmm. 
that was that took forever for that to be a, a any kind of a of a a commonplace really practice, right? It really did. So, you know, and part of it was the the technology initially uh, offered. It was something new, and and all major manufacturers uh, hung their hat on either their own brand or or somebody else's. But you know, I can remember some of those early things coming out of Canada, and they were really crude. Uh, I always look back to uh, uh, we had a salesman there that farmed as well, and a uh, uh, farmer came in one day and he said. You know, you can drive straighter without that thing. You can drive really straight. You can do a better job of driving straight without that guidance than you can with it. But like I said, the the early things, the short line guidance stuff that we offered uh, at a, it seemed like a decent price. It was a lot lower than some of the majors, but it just, it was just always seemed to be uh, a lot of pain, you know, with them. When when did you see that technology become more of a commonplace in the conversation with with your with your customers? Well, um, well, it's hard to look back on that timeline and see. I mean, some have had it for quite a while, but I would say you know um, there, and and I think through the the NRCS offices and some other stuff. There's been some some government programs that helped with the purchase of that. I think that stimulated a lot when they when they participated a little bit in getting guidance and and different things. Uh, you know the auto tracks available uh, and you know because they weren't cheap to begin with and, and they they really aren't today yet. But but if you see the value in them, you know I, I know people today that say they can't farm without it. They they would just park the tractor now. You know, I, I find that hard to believe if something has to be done and the satellites are down or whatever it might be. I think you still have to push forward and rely on driving, but that's me. But um, I, I would say really, in the, and this is 17, but really probably a lot of it, ad, ad, adoption maybe in 2008, nine. I mean, there were early adopters in that but as far as bigger numbers i think it took a while they had to they sat back and saw uh had to learn and see that this was a good thing you know that it it was productive and and it actually saved them some money yeah so <clears throat> i started working in this business in 2006 and <clears throat> that to me when it was when pretty much 2004 to 2006 was when you started really seeing some some mass consolidation of, of dealerships. Uh -huh. You started seeing the the one and two store dealerships merge with you know another one and two store dealership, and their their two went to five to seven. You know, and, and yes, and by the uh, by the late two thousands, you were looking at dealerships that were seven to nine stores, um, ten stores, and they were people wondered how they could get any bigger. Um, right. What was uh, what was your experience with that? And and again, looking back at, at, at the farmer, what was their experience with it? And what did they see change between, you know, the, the one and two store or the two and three store early 90 dealerships and the, and the late 2000, um, you know, multiple big, huge, you know, $100 million plus dealerships? Yeah. 
Well, in, in August of 2010, we became part of a larger group. Uh, and our, our three dealerships were, were two for, two went to one lo one owner and, and one went to a, a dealership in Oklahoma. There was all, all these places were already, you know, multi, multi, uh, uh store locations on their own. And, you know, um, you know, I suppose that if I went out tomorrow, uh, I could find some people that do not, still do not accept or like uh, the multi-store uh, uh, deal. I mean, they'll they'll have their own reasons for it. I, I've seen customers change colors to go to um, a uh, different brand that has one or two stores instead of eight, ten, twelve. Uh, they're just they just. Uh, or that they're acting out on their convictions and their beliefs. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know when, you know, that issue will be put to rest. You know, uh, I think it, a lot of people are going to gnaw on that for a good long time. But yep. in our case, you know, we were, our two stores were uh, absorbed into and made a, a nine store uh, operation. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there was growling locally uh, by some of the farmers, uh, and uh, it depends on which side of the fence that you're on and what you believe is the best for yourself. Uh, I think uh, not. There's not a cookie cutter approach to it. We can't say that everybody should like it or everybody should dislike it. Right. From my from my perspective, it seems like the larger dealership groups have have made it. A little, I mean, I think as I think dealerships are always going to continue to grow and, and get larger, and the reason for that is the farmer grows and gets larger, and yeah, there's less and less farmers, you know, farming the ground right now. So there's every year there gets to be less than there was the year before, and right out here that we have we have several farmers that um, really could do business with probably four or five of our locations. Just based on where they farm at, and mm -hmm. trying to cover that that one customer and 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 manage that one customer, it's a necessity to have that be you know, in my opinion, mm -hmm. to have that that scope and and scale to to service that customer. Right, you've hit those bullets. I had just a few minutes uh, after I got done cutting Milo today to come in, and I just jotted down a couple things so that I wouldn't look too bad here, but. <laughs> the number one thing change that I saw over the years was the computers and the yeah. internet. Number two was consolidation of farms and dealers. Yeah. So you're you're you know that's exactly the way that I see it. Yeah. And uh, but anyhow. So now that you're in your uh, quasi retirement years, <laughs> and the golden years, the golden years, and you and you kind of look you look back on your on your career as a as an ag salesman, ag equipment salesman, yeah. what's what's the biggest thing that you saw change, you know, outside technology? But I mean, what what was the one, the biggest thing that that you saw change across your career? Well, uh, you know, I don't know. It'd be easy to say the product offering. You know, when you move from uh, a forty four forty, you know, to uh, 
an 8285R or, or any any competitive model. I mean, the, the strides that major manufacturers have made in farming is just, you know, unbelievable, really. Uh, uh, and a couple other things, a uh, couple other things that are bylines there, but we used to not hardly deal in our area with cash rents on it. You know, no, nobody was doing that. Now there's a lot of cash renting on the farm ground going on, and and another another big one is is that we did almost no leasing for the first twenty years at least. I would say that I was there, and now leasing is a big part of everybody's business, the farmers and the dealerships. But uh, you know, that's the biggest thing. And you said you came in in two thousand and six. And, you know, uh, I saw the dip, you know, in 87, 88, 89 through there. You know, it was terrible. I mean, you, you know, you were lucky to keep your job, uh, you know, and it, but you had to do different things at the dealership to keep it. But the thing that I take away from that is those people that have only uh, been in this business in the good times, you know, uh, and now they're experiencing the other flip side of the coin there, but you know, it will come back. It is cyclical and it came back out of the, the latter eighties, early nineties. And we had, we ended up with some pretty good times, some pretty good business. I mean, some big dealership growth and those kind of things, but you know, it will change now. The, as always, the big question is when, and, and that's, that's what, uh, you know, somebody with a magic ball, has got to tell us, but uh, you know, for me, when crop prices come back, possibly cash grants, you know, lower a little bit, uh, and we're we're not, you know, we're not corn belt down here, you know, so we our cash rents aren't nearly as as high as what they're dealing with, but uh, it, it you know most of it was crop shares in the past, and there still is a great deal of that down here. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, you know, I was at a, a meeting not too long ago, and a guy was talking about the, the cyclical nature of agriculture, and and was showing basically that he'd whittle it down to where there is a a thirty years a thirty year cycle in farming, and um, every thirty years it resets. It goes from yeah. the, the basement all the way up to just record highs, and then it falls off back to the basement again, and you work your way yeah. back. And about every thirty years, it, it does that turn, and and yeah. Obviously, we're in the basement right now. Um, right. <clears throat> so we're working our way back up. But there's a, it's a, you know, it's it's. I, I like talking to guys like you because it's it's been, it's a. You, you there's some lessons to learn there that that you know, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. And I, well, that's I, correct. <clears throat> I uh, I always just enjoy sitting down talking with guys like you and, and and learning a little bit about what the past was like. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of the kind of the way it's been. Even even though that I felt like you know manufacturers were delivering you know uh, in, in most cases some excellent product. It, it doesn't matter if the buyer uh, is not can't move or is not motivated to move on that product because of the economic times. Yeah. So it's not how good a product that you offer. It, it's more to do with the economics that we find ourselves in at the time. Yep, and you have to be creative enough to think about how you're going to structure things and right. and what that looks like so the, the the biggest disappointment for me is to realize that you know i started before that but let's say, say 
uh, wholeheartedly in 87. And, you know, that's 30 years, you know, mm -hmm. the cycle you were talking about early. Yep. But then someone like you can come in at 2006 and know more than me. That's, that's what's impressive to me. <laughs> You've forgotten more than I know, Al. So it's well, I can't remember it. That's for sure, and I I don't know if I agree with that. So my my statement is is very true then. <laughs> uh, All right, Al. Well, before we wrap up, what's one piece of advice you'd give to any uh, any young guy in this business right now? Uh, build customer relationships because they're going to last longer than the current economic times. You know, uh, you know, I I think. I know of salesmen, and, and I just don't like to be around them that, you know, wants this short, quick sale, you know, and, and they may, you know, for the one for the one for, and I, you know, I think you need to build those base relationships. You need to understand your customer. Uh, you have to hear the business side from your manager or your CEO or whatever. Temper that a little bit with what you find out on the ground level out in the country about what these people are really dealing with. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it's, it's a trend, I think, that I've seen. Uh, it, we used to feature a lot of people that were come from farming backgrounds or were actually continuing to farm and work at the dealership. But, you know, they had a pretty good grounding in what's really going on not what somebody tells you find out for yourself what's really going on and and uh, uh you know not just what somebody tells you like an infomercial so anyhow that's that's what i'd say build the working relationships if you do that and you take care of your customer you'll have a customer for life well that's uh good advice man i think you know relationship building is is such a key part to any any kind of sales that you're doing whether you're selling equipment or whatever it is but right that's a, such a key part so well al thank you for being on my podcast oh it's it's my pleasure casey anytime it's it's always good to talk to you whenever i can well that's going to do it for this edition of the moving iron podcast i'd like to thank al t meyer for being on this edition remember if you want to continue any of these conversations you can hit me up on facebook twitter or instagram you can also send me an email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out. <laughs>